let's pray. Father, uh, tonight we do thank you. God, we thank you for your amazing grace in our lives. And, and Lord, God, I thank you that you, you do reach down out of heaven to get a hold of our hearts and, and to change us and to draw us close to you. And I pray tonight as we look at Ezra and that dilemma and the situation that that, that uh, group of people we're encountering, Lord, and Ezra in particular, I pray that we would learn, God, how we need to react and how our hearts need to be in those situations. Whether we're Ezra, whether we're one of the people, whether uh, we're somebody who's just really messing up like some of them were, God, I pray once again that you would just speak to us and we're all someplace in that group. So give us ears to hear and and bless this time, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, as I, as I think of Ezra, you know, I, I love studying Ezra and all that's going on and all that's happening and, and taking place in the, in the book. And, and I just think of him as an individual and what went on in his heart and what went on in his life. Just thinking about coming all of that way and, and the anticipation that he had to get back to Jerusalem or get to Jerusalem. I keep saying back because the nation was brought back, but hey, it was his first journey and some of us are getting ready to go to Israel and I think one of the most exciting things the first time you go to Israel is driving into Jerusalem and, and all of a sudden you see it and it's in front of you and, and you know, for us it's a different, man, can you imagine Ezra? I mean, he wasn't on a tour bus and he wasn't going through a tunnel and he wasn't doing those things. But can you imagine, I, for those of us who have been there and had that excitement, can you imagine Ezra as he walked up and he saw that? And, you know, again, some of the people, older people were saying, oh, the temple wasn't as good as we remember and, and that stuff. But for him, it was phenomenal. And he finally gets there. He finally makes it. And he's got the letters from the king. He's got all that gold, all the, all the silver, all the stuff. And he finally gets there and they're unloading it and they're fellowshipping and they're talking and people are excited. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes up and they go, hey, Ezra, we got something to tell you. We're blowing it. And we're blowing it big time. And you kind of go from there to... And he crashed, and then we read where he pulled his hair out and tore his clothes. And last time we read, he had this really long, beautiful prayer as he called out to God. And you know, when, when I read that part of Ezra, I think, would I be someone who prayed or would I be someone who scolded? And somebody who got in people's faces and somebody who, you know, and, and we, we, we're gonna express our passion in different ways and God makes us all different. And we're gonna read, Nehemiah pulled their hair out. You know, he didn't pull his hair out. So Nehemiah acted a little bit different. Now you have to understand, Nehemiah happened 13 years after this. So we'll discuss that when we get to Nehemiah. But still, man, you just, that guy is calling out in the name of the Lord. And here's the thing, I think he can't believe that that happened in Jerusalem. Why would you, after being exiled for you know, 70 years, now it's been 100 years for, for him particularly, and why would you, after all of that, go back? And yet there's some of us, we walk with the Lord, we kind of start out strong, maybe go for a year, two years, five years, maybe even 10 years, maybe 20 years, and then we go back. 
And we see these people going back and Ezra's heart is broken. He cannot believe that's happening because that was the exa- you know, part of the reason they were put into exile. So he calls on the name of the Lord and, and here's what blows my mind. Ezra gets on his face before God and that drew others to him. He didn't preach at him. He didn't preach to him. He's got on his face and began to pray for them. And, and that's where we pick it up in chapter 10. So he's praying and it tells us in, in verse one, it says, now while Ezra was, Ezra was praying and while he was confessing and weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men and women and children gathered to him from Israel for this people wept very bitterly. You kind of see now this is, this is spreading through the group and, and how wonderful that is. You know, I, I, believe, I believe, listen, I believe we, we need to have fun and we need to laugh and we need to enjoy the Lord. But there's also a time for serious weeping. And there's a time to be serious and, and sit before him. We were just talking in the, in the back before service with the worship team. It's fun to laugh and it bothers me when, when people act like if you laugh, you're being irreverent and, and you shouldn't do that and, and et cetera. But also, if we're someone who we love to laugh, we should also be people who, it's okay to weep. Especially over sin, and especially over sin in the church. Something for the world to sin because the world doesn't know any better, and they sin because that's who they are. But in the church, when was the last time maybe you heard something about somebody or, or whatever and, and you just sat down and wept for them? And you were overwhelmed with that sense of sorrow for that person and, and what they're doing with their life rather than telling somebody else or getting on the prayer chain that sometimes we call gossip chains, prayer chains. And we have to tell everybody, when was the last time you just wept because that person was broken in sin? When was the last time when some national Christian figure did something and, and you just sat down and you wept because that's happening. That's what Ezra did. And as Ezra wept, look at man, all these people started gathering there and they're weeping together. They're brokenhearted over sin. We can get brokenhearted over a lot of things, but I think if we're really gut honest, we don't get that brokenhearted over sin. And that should be the thing that really breaks our heart, our sin and others' sin. So I see this, man. To me, this is, this is an incredible move of the Spirit. And then verse two lets us know, and Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, we have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the people of the land. Now you can read later on, you can, you can read in verse 26, his family was doing this, his family was involved. Not him personally, but notice he says, we, and he's including himself in, and Ezra did that throughout his prayer. He didn't say you, he says we, and he says we've done this, and then here's what I love, here's what we've done, and then look at the end of verse two. I love the end of that. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. You see, you and I need to understand something. Sin is ugly, sin is destructive, sin is, you know, all of the, all of the things we can use to describe it, but... There's hope in the church. There's always hope in Jesus Christ. 
And we need to cling to that. And I think especially, I think especially when we're sinning, we need to cling to the idea there's hope in Jesus. And he can restore me, he can change me, he can fix me, he can do this. So you gotta love this Shechaniah guy. Not a real, you know, great name. Might name one of your kids after him sometime. My daughter told me she was so glad I didn't read the Bible before she was born. Should have had the weirdest name. Her name's Leah, but uh, not because of Bible things. But she says, Dad, I'm so glad, I'm so glad. You didn't read the Bible before I got born because you'd have given me the weirdest name and I probably would have. But Shechaniah, you hear his name and, and now if you hear that name, what do you think? Repentance, honesty, coming clean before God. I believe, I believe the church has lost the idea of true repentance and just coming before God and being honest with him, letting him cleanse us. The scripture's very clear, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. But the thing is, we gotta come to him and admit that we've sinned. We have to be honest and open before him. And then it says he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So now we're back to that hope. And here's, here's uh, Shechaniah. He's coming and he's going, look what we've done. Look at what's happened. And he says, man, we've taken pagan wives, but there's hope in Israel. Why was he seeing hope? Here's what I think he's visually seeing. He's seeing a broken man before God, weeping before God because of the sin of the people. And he knows now, now there's hope. People aren't celebrating, they're not dancing, they're not rejoicing. Here's a broken man for the sin of the people and here's what Shechaniah sees. Man, we have done this thing. He's not making excuses, he's not trying to clean it up, he's not trying to whitewash it, he's not trying to fix it. He's just saying, hey, we've done it. But now there's hope in Israel. And what is the hope of Israel? God. And so he lays that out, I, I love it, and, and then he comes up with a plan. In verse three, now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandments of God and let it be done according to the law. Arise for this matter is your responsibility and we also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. So, you know, here's what it gets confusing. In verse three you have, I, I, it's definitely Shechaniah talking. In verse four, we're not sure who talking is that Shechaniah is that Ezra who exactly is speaking and you know even even the scholars the the brilliant guys that know all of the Hebrew and all of the you know all of the grammar and everything there they're going I don't know which one's really talking at that point and sometimes here's what happens we get lost in that who cares who's talking that's what I think I don't care who's talking here's what they're saying uh, Shechaniah says, let's make a covenant before our God and let's do this, let's take care of this. And then they say, hey, let's arise, let's get going on. It's one thing to talk about it that we're learning in James, right? It's one thing to talk about it, it's a whole nother thing to do it. And let's get up and do it. Now we gotta think about, here's the dilemma. This is an intense situation. You have a group of people, we're gonna learn in a moment, it's about 115, maybe 120 men who have taken foreign wives. And you're thinking, that's not that many. And here's generally what we do. Well, that's not that bad. Yes, it is. If one was doing it, it's bad. 
Why don't we, why don't we try and fix things? And here's what I love, they're not fixing it. So, but here's the dilemma. We gotta get rid of these women. Well, how do you get rid of those women? They're somebody's wife. They have kids. How are we gonna fix this? And I have to be really frank. I think, I think this part of Ezra, in my opinion, is pretty messed up. I know that Malachi, Malachi, the Italian prophet, here's what I know. He's, he writes, God hates divorce. We're gonna read him and we're gonna start him next week. And we'll go to Nehemiah. But listen, here's what they're saying. We've gotta get together and we've gotta figure this thing out. What are we gonna do about these foreign wives involved? Now, once again, I wanna clarify if you're kinda of just coming for the first time tonight or whatever. It's not a racial thing, it's not an ethnic thing, it's none of those things, it's the idea that if Israeli men or women married a foreigner, they would pull them away from their God, just like today, if a believer marries an unbeliever, it always cracks me up when they go, well, I'm missionary dating, there's no such thing. If you're missionary dating them, they're missionary dating you, just need to know. And they're gonna pull on you as hard as you're gonna pull on them and you got a war going on. So, you know, it's the same thing. I believe strongly that people who are born again, believers in Jesus Christ should not be unequally yoked with somebody who is not born again and, and not in love with Jesus. And, and uh, we'll talk more about that, but that's what the issue is. So I just wanna make it clear, it's not a racial thing, it's not an ethnic thing, it's not that God doesn't like certain people, it's that it's gonna mess things up and it's gonna mess up mostly the people's lives. So they come together and they go, I know, let's make a covenant before our God and let's take care of this thing and let's take care of these women and let's get those who tremble at the commandments of God and right now, let's just, it's our responsibility and let's rise up and take care of this and let's be of good courage, good courage. Now all of that sounds good, doesn't it? But I'm still thinking, how do we fix this? Here's how I would like it fixed. I would like those women to get converted. That's what I would like. I think that would be the ideal fix, right? Let's just get those ladies saved and let's go on with life and get this fixed. And maybe, you know, maybe amongst the group, maybe there were several who did get saved and that's why we're only down to 110. Or some people say between 110, you can count the names at the end of the chapter if you want. But between 110 and 120 people. And so, man, so let's get this going and then verse six, I'm sorry, verse five tells us, then Ezra arose, you gotta love this guy, and he made the leaders of the priests and the Levites and all, the Israel, and all Israel swear an oath that they would do according to this word, so they swore an oath. So everybody says, yes, we're gonna fix this. Now I like that. I like the church coming together. Let's, let's just say it that way. It's great when you have a major, major issue and we're all gonna be on the same page and we're gonna take care of this. We're not gonna fight about it. We're not gonna decide what's sin and what's not sin. We're not gonna try and fix it. We're gonna believe God and we're gonna go forward and we're gonna take care of it. Doesn't that kind of excite you? Let's just believe God and let's go forward and as says, okay, so he calls the, the leaders together, he calls everybody together, and he goes, let's fix this. And people are going, yeah, let's fix it. 
Now, I'm not sure there's a perfect solution yet. And then Ezra, verse 6, rose up from before the house of God, and he went into the chamber of Jeho, uh, Jehohanan, uh, the son of Eliashib, and when he came there, he ate no bread, drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. So not only did he have the time of prayer and the time of weeping, now, as they get ready to move forward on the issue, what does Ezra do? He goes in a complete fast, not just a, not just a fast from food. He went total fast. And once again, understand, he's not fasting so God will do something. That's called a hunger strike. I like to emphasize that. He's fasting to get in line with God. He's got to find out what is the heart of God in this issue and what is the mind of God in this issue. So he gets to the place where he can fast and then verse seven says, and they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem and to all the descendants of the captivity that they must gather at Jerusalem. Now something you need to understand at this time, at this time with Ezra, or all of Israel, or Judah, if you will, but Israel, the whole, the whole land was 25 miles uh, north and south and, and about 35 east and west, so it wasn't very big. It was really small when they came back. So, so now they sent out to everybody there, and they go, we gotta fix this thing. We gotta get it together. And they sent it out, and verse eight said, and that whoever would not come within three days according to the instruction of the leaders and the elders, all of his property would be confiscated, and he himself would be separated from the assembly of those from the captivity. So here's the deal. Check this out. We're gonna have a meeting and this is one of those mandatory meetings. And if you don't come, we're gonna take away your property. And worse than that, you're not gonna be part of the community anymore. So it's kind of one of those things, you better clear your calendar and come, right? Kind of getting the idea that this was a serious time of gathering together and, and coming together. And again, I think it's something that we kind of, we kind of lose in, in, uh, in our day and age about things that we're you know, obligated to do. Uh, we just sent out a, a meeting for Israel uh, for the trip and we said it's mandatory and somebody wrote back and said, does that mean I have to come? And I'm thinking, get a dictionary. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, and, and if you were one of the ones who wrote that in, I'm sorry that I just said that out loud in front of everybody. But, you know, it's kind of, we kind of lost that idea of, you know, the, here's the thing, words don't mean anything anymore. And here's what they said, if you don't come, you don't just lose all of your belongings and your possessions, you're out of the community, you're not part of Israel anymore. That's huge. So I'm kind of thinking everybody came, what do you think? I'm thinking everybody's gonna show up, right? That's one of those times where, hey, I, I will get there and I will be part of that. And so it says in verse nine, so all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem. Don't you, don't you kind of like this idea of they're all coming together? And here's what I love about this situation. It's a difficult, hard situation. How do we make... How do we make up our minds what we're gonna do? Well, you could, get, you could get a group of guys to do it and you could have them decide or you could get a, a small, you know, what do we do today? We make committees and, and you can get that. Or here's what Ezra does. This is kind of weird. We're all coming together and we're all gonna come together and we're all gonna go before God. 
And we're gonna be serious about seeking the Lord and his wisdom in this situation. So that's how we're gonna handle it. And if you don't come, you get kicked out. So all the men, I love this, man. All the men are there and it says they got there within three days in the middle of verse nine. And it was the ninth month, the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square of the house of God trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. So you need to know this is the rainy season. Actually, it was their ninth month. It's around December. It's sometime in December where they're gathered together and they're coming together. And if you've ever been to Israel, November, December, January is a rainy time, you know, the heaviest rainy time, and it's cold. And so these guys are like, they're, they're fearful of God, but they're also trembling because they're cold and they're getting rained on and they're trying to figure things out. So they got this huge dilemma. So I, I, I look at this and I think, you know, how bad could it get? Like a lot of people today, if it's raining, you don't even come to church and you have a building to get in. And we have umbrellas, but we're going, it's raining, I'm not going to church. I'll watch it online. And so we tend to do that. And you know, I'm not picking on you, I'm just saying that happens. It cracks me up. In Florida, it rains all the time. I don't know why they call Florida the sunshine state. By the way, I just have a big beef with that. Their sunshine like is liquid sunshine because it rains there all the time. And it's, you know, a friend of mine, Eric Souza, who's uh, in Jacksonville, like he says, it rains, people don't go to church. And I'm thinking, then they must never go to church because it rains all the time. Luckily, we're in Arizona, so it rains twice a year, so, you know, we're good. But these guys are sitting in the rain and, and they're shivering, they're cold, they're shivering because I think part of it is, what's gonna happen? Because here's what I believe. I believe every person that showed up showed up expecting for God to give them the answer of what they're supposed to do. And a lot of times, even when we pray, we're not really expecting God to answer us. We're just going through the motion of prayer. We need to expect to hear from the Lord. And so they're gathered there, and you kind of get that idea that it's, it's cold and it's kind of nasty. Then Ezra, verse, uh, verse 10, then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have transgressed and you have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. So he stands up and he says, here's our problem. We've taken foreign wives. And now you've added to everything we've done as a nation. So then it says, verse 11, now therefore make confession to the Lord God, to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the pagan wives. So here's, here's what they need to do. They need to get rid of their pagan wives. Now, something you and I need to understand this is an area of scripture. You know, there's area of scripture that just describe things, descriptive. And then there's areas of scripture that are prescriptive, that tells us things to do. This is an area that's descriptive. You don't read this and from this draw a conclusion that that's the answer to your situation. They're just telling us what happened here. I wanna make that clear. So you don't draw your, your whole theology around marriage and divorce and all of that from this. You gotta use all of the scripture and, and go different places because here's what I know, God hates divorce. I don't care what color it is, I don't care what flavor you put on it, et cetera, et cetera. Now listen, I'm not saying that to make people who have had divorces feel bad because I know that's a horrible, horrible situation and I know it's painful. And that's why God hates it. 
He doesn't like to see people hurt. He doesn't like to see people torn up. So I wanna make that clear, but here's, here's their, their, their answer for the situation. We have to get rid of these women. Now, again, I, I would pray that the, they wouldn't have to get rid of them, that they would be converted and, and things would go well, but it doesn't seem like that's happening. So we have to get rid of them. Now imagine you're sitting there, you're one of the 110 to 115 guys, and you have a wife and children. And here's what's been announced. You gotta get rid of your wife. That's my wife. Well, I know, but you need to get rid of her. What does that look like? How does that feel for that individual? What kind of stuff is going on in, in their hearts? Listen, I mean, I mean, this is a tough situation. And I, I think sometimes we read our Bibles and we go, okay, and we just kind of move on. And I want us to feel the pain here a little bit of what's happening to these individuals. And what about the wives? What's gonna happen to me? I'm gonna go back to my people? I don't know, you know, I haven't been there. And so they have all of this dilemma, kids are gonna leave, so he says, this is what we need to do. Then verse 12 says, then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, yes, as you have said, we must do. Here's what they understand. That's the only way to resolve this situation. And again, I'm not saying that God told them to get a divorce, because if he hates divorce, he wouldn't tell them that. But that's the decision they came up with to handle this specific situation. And so they go, okay, you're right. And then they're out in the cold and then it tells us this in verse 13. It says, but there are many people. It is the season of heavy rain and we are not able to stand outside nor is this the work of one or two days for there are many of us who have transgressed in this matter. So here's what they're saying. There's a whole bunch of us who have sinned and we're not gonna take care of it today. We're not gonna take care of it tomorrow. So we need some time. We need to do this. And I think part of it is, hey, we need to be sensitive about what we're doing. We're just not gonna go down the road and go, you leave, you leave, you leave, you go, you go, you go. We gotta figure this out and we gotta make this, you know, the best that we can make it. So we need some time. I kinda like that idea. It's gonna take some time to put this together. Plus, it's the rainy season. So verse 14, please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let those who are in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed uh, times together with the elders and the judges of the city until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. So they're gonna do this. Now, here's what the Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us how they took care of those ladies and the kids. I gotta believe that they did something to take care of them. I gotta believe that if you're in that situation and you have to separate from your wife because she won't, she won't convert, that then you're responsible to take care of her. You're responsible to provide for her, to make sure she's taken care of. I I believe that happened. Now, I may be reading into it and I might be trying to fix it for my own mind and my own heart and and make it a little bit better than what it is because this is a difficult, difficult place in scripture. You know, and and hey, there's, you can argue forever. Is it right? Is it wrong? Et cetera, et cetera. And you're not gonna do any good. Here's what happened. It happened. It's a reality. 
And so there's no sense in us arguing over it, but there is that. I, I've, I've spoken before. There was a book I read when I, when I first got saved. I don't think it's even in print. I don't even know if you can find it. It was about a guy who, who uh, got saved up in the mountains someplace in, in South America, one of the, you know, up high, kind of isolated. He got saved because he was teaching himself English by reading the Bible. How cool, huh? Missionaries left the Bible, he got saved. And when he got saved, he started believing the Bible. And the first thing he did is he started witnessing to everybody. The problem was he owned a bar, he owned a brothel, and he owned a grocery store. And he had several wives. And so he would serve shots of tequila and tell people about Jesus. And some missionaries came and they go, uh, this is a little weird. I don't think you should be doing this. And he said, I love this guy. He goes, show me in here where it says not to do it, in the Bible. So they did, and he believed it, and he closed down his bar, closed down his brothel, and then they came, and they, you know, and he goes, okay. And then they came, and they go, you shouldn't have multiple wives. And here's what he did. He built a house for every wife. And he took care of them. He provided for them, made sure they were taken care of, kind of like these guys. I think they made sure they were taken care of. That's just, I think that's the heart of God. And I think they were taken care of, so I wanna make that, but they had to separate. Here's the thing, they had to separate from them. And you know what, I, one, one person, here's what, here's what I read about one person. Our sin always has consequences. We don't wanna believe that, but it does. And sometimes it's immediate, sometimes it's distant, but here's what one person said, and it really struck home. You know, you, you start a nail and you put a nail in, and you can always pull that nail out, right? You can always repent from sin but the hole's always there. And we need to remember that. Better not to sin than to sin and repent because you got the hole there. And you're gonna have to, and that's what these guys are having to deal with. There's, there's always gonna be that hurt and that pain because of what they did. So, so they said that, and then, and then it says, listen, in verse 14, again, I want to read that. But uh, please let the leaders of the entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come and, and uh, at appointed times together with the elders and the judges of the cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikva, opposed this and this guy, Meshulan, and, and uh, Shabbatai, the Levite, gave them support. So here's what happened. Four guys said, we don't like this. Two guys got up and said, we don't like this. Four other guys said, we don't like this. And here's what happened. You know, here's what kind of blows my mind. You got verse 15, and nothing else about it. It's like they opposed it, but it didn't do any good. And you know, sometimes, sometimes we want to defend our sin, don't we? Any of you guys ever try to justify and defend your sin? If you said no, you're doing it right now. <laughs> we try to do that. We try to fix it. We try to clean it. We try to make it okay. So these guys are saying no, and that's all we hear from them. And in verse 14 says, then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra the priest with certain heads of fathers and households were set apart by their fathers, households of each, uh, each of them by name, and they sat down on the first day of the 10th month to examine the matter, and by the first day uh, of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. So it took about three months to go through this. That's good. 
Hey, when we deal with sin, I don't think we always need to rush through something. We need to take our time. We need to collect the facts. We need to think about things. And I'm thinking our own sin. We need to figure it out. Don't just rush through. And Because sometimes we say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it, when those are just empty words. But if you're taking the time and you're working through it and you're talking about it and you're thinking about it, hey, it's going to come to the light. So they did that. And, and again, about three months and then verse 18 starts and, and says, and among the sons of the priests who, were taken, who had taken pagan wives, the following were found, uh, were found, the sons of Jeshua and the son of Josadak. And then it goes on. And from here to the end of the chapter, it's a bunch of names. And you can read the names and you can number them. I'm not gonna try and, you know, it's just like some people go, wait a minute, we're Calvary Chapel. We go verse by verse, uh-huh. That's why you're gonna read it at home before you go to sleep. But no, I, I encourage you to read it because here's the thing, I think when, when I don't read it, I do feel a little bit guilty, but I can't say those names any better than you guys. But here's what we need to know. The names are listed for this reason. Number one, to make it real. These are real people. Number two, because they sinned. Here's what blows my mind. Do you remember when we started Ezra? In chapter two, there's a whole list of names of all the families that came back. It's a really good list to be on. Chapter 10, list of names, not a good list. Can you imagine your name being recorded forever because of your sin? Generation after generation reads that, and hopefully you do read it. Some of you will go, well, this is one generation ain't gonna read it, I'm not saying all those names. But they're real people, and they really sin. And again, you can read the names and go through them. But the, verse 44 says this, after you go through all of those names, it says, verse 44 says, and all of these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. And that's the bummer. And here's what I know in this situation. Everybody gets hurt. The wives get hurt. The men get hurt. By the way, there was 20-some priests and gatekeepers and singers, so people in ministry who had done that. That's a major bummer to me. So... What do we learn from this? Well, I think number one, I hope we learn, man, I want to keep short accounts of my sin because I surely don't want to get written in the back of someone's book. I don't want my name going down that way. Number two, when we bring things to the light, there's hope in Jesus Christ. Don't you love it? Here's what happened, man. They have been doing this for a couple decades. It's not brand new. It just got brought to... Ezra's attention. Ezra got quiet before the Lord and still before the Lord and it caused the people to come out and then it caused this massive repentance to happen. And repentance is one of the greatest things we can do. It's freeing. It's allowing us to be delivered from that sin and not letting that sin control us, not letting that sin be the thing that brings us down. And you can figure out what you want to do with the way they dealt with it and how you want to feel about it because it's a difficult thing. Again, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying you read this and you go, oh, well, that was easy. 
Each one of us kind of have to deal with it, but here's what I know. It's so hard to deal with, why? Because that's what sin does. It's deceitful. Sin makes us think it's going to be good for us, right? Doesn't the Bible say someplace sin is pleasurable for a season? If it wasn't, we wouldn't be enticed. But it's deceitful and it draws us in and then it causes nothing but chaos and destruction in our lives. So let's be a people who keep a short account. And let's be a people who, hey, we want our fellowship our group of believers, we want to be close with each other that we can be accountable to one another and we keep these things and we don't want them to spread throughout. We want, we want to be people who, hey, let's take care of it here with one another before it becomes a huge issue for decades and before Ezra has to come. Once Ezra comes in, it's not going to be good. So, Let's take care of it before then. Let's stand up and pray. Father, I pray that tonight as we are here and Lord, we read this and it's one thing to read about stuff happening and what's going on. And I do believe God, sometimes we read it and we just think we're reading a story and and kind of just put it in that situation and, and just go through. But God, I pray that we would come to realize these are real people. Those are real names. They may be hard for us to pronounce because they're not names that we're familiar with. They're not Pete and Joe and Sam and George and Susie and et cetera. They're different names but they're still names of individuals. Individuals doing life and getting messed up in the midst of that life. And Lord, the one thing I think about this list of names is this is a list of names of men who came forward and confessed their sin and confessed what was going on. And that tells me that you forgave them and you set them free. Oh, Lord, it doesn't say there's not going to be consequences. That means that they're free from that sin. And just like us today, when we come and we confess to you, you tell us that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. You're even so good, God, that you cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's still those consequences. And so I pray we would be a people who we would weigh carefully decisions that we make we would weigh carefully the areas that we're willing to step into and we're willing to walk into. And that God, our lives would glorify you and exalt your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, tonight as we...